morning. Today we're going to continue our sermon series on worship, connect, and serve. And as Pastor Don began in the month of February thinking about the idea of connecting or building relationships with other Christians here at South, we're going to continue that theme today. But as we think about that, I think it's important to maybe take a step back and begin to think about some of the more basic questions again. Like, why is it important that we build relationships with other Christians? Uh, Why is it important that we prioritize those relationships? After all, if Christianity is about a personal faith in Jesus, a personal relationship with him, why do we need to involve other people? Doesn't that just muddy the waters and make things messier than they need to be? Well, our answers to those questions have a lot to do with what we think is happening when we gather here as a congregation. See, a lot of people today in our evangelical subculture, uh, they come to church seeking what I'll call religious entertainment. That is, we come and we we sit, we enjoy the amenities, maybe the free childcare, the coffee. We come and we sit, we enjoy the presentation from the front. And as we come in and as we leave, maybe we exchange some small talk, some pleasantries with uh, others on the way in and out, and we enjoy the uplifting message together, and we're off about our week. But in that sense, our relationship to other Christians in the church is not any different than people who go to the same movie theater. When you think about it, you go to a movie theater, you walk in the door, you buy your ticket, and you stand in line to get some popcorn or something, and then you walk in, you find your seat, and maybe you, you know, exchange some pleasantries with the person next to you. You enjoy the show, and then afterwards, maybe you talk a little bit about uh, the plot twist at the end of the movie or something like that, and then you move about your business. There's no personal connection to one another. There's no responsibility to one another. But if we understand our gatherings and our congregation to be a gathering of God's kingdom, and one another to be fellow citizens in that kingdom, then our relationships look a little different. So our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 3. You can feel free to turn there. And this really was kind of coming to mind as I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a a Christian firefighter. And he's moved to a couple different towns, worked for a couple different fire stations now. And one of the things he lamented to me was that when he goes to a new place, he finds that he makes deeper connections with his fellow firefighters faster than he does with fellow Christians in the church. And as we were talking about that, and he was pretty upset about it, I kind of got to thinking about why that might be the case. And it seems fairly obvious that for firefighters, much like people in the military, when you have to entrust your physical well-being to another person, when there's physical danger at stake, uh, you tend to develop those relationships a little more quickly, right? You learn to trust your life to someone else. And I wonder if the reason that doesn't happen in churches as frequently or maybe as easily is because we don't understand the spiritual dangers that we face day by day. I think we're going to be more aware of that as we read in our text from Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. So we're going to begin in verse 12, verses 12 to 14. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, 
so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Now I think the first thing that we need to be made aware of, our first observation, needs to be the end of that passage in verse 14. And he highlights this fact that only those who persevere in their faith to the very end will be saved. Now, this is an important doctrine in Christianity called perseverance of the saints. Uh, some of you may know it a little differently by uh, the doctrine of eternal security. Uh, the common phrase is once saved, always saved. Now, that's a glorious truth in Scripture. And I think throughout the New Testament, you see that God is the one who predestines us. He elects us from eternity past. He causes us to uh, be born again, and we're justified by faith. He sanctifies us, and he's the one who ultimately glorifies us at the end. And that's all glorious truth, not the aim of this passage. This passage is focusing mainly on how we participate in persevering in the faith. And the problem is we've adopted this idea of once saved, always saved, which is true, but we've twisted what it means to be once saved. And so we have a lot of people in our churches today, a lot of people out in the world who claim to be Christians who maybe know the facts of the gospel. They know Jesus died and rose again, and they equate that with being once saved. Uh, others maybe made a decision, they prayed a prayer, or they filled out a card, or they walked an aisle. And those people also have this mentality that because I did X, that means I am once saved. And because the doctrine is true that once we're saved, we're always saved, whatever uh, superficial activity I engaged in when I was younger, that's going to see me through to the end. And so the always saved part becomes more like do whatever you want, right? It doesn't really matter how you live because you were already once saved, and we've misinterpreted that because in reality, it's only by persevering in the faith that we can know for sure that we were once saved. You know, I like the illustration of, uh, you know, how do you know that you've been born again? Well, when you think about it, all of us in this room have experienced physical birth. We have no memory of that experience, but it happened. And the reason we know it happened is because we're alive today. Well, the same is true in the Christian life. We can't say that, yes, God saved me way back when if I'm spiritually living a dead life now, if I have no fruit of the Spirit, no good works, no uh, aftermath of what normally comes from being saved. So to be once saved, to uh, enter the faith, so to speak, means committing yourself in total devotion to Christ and his word. Now, this doesn't mean that you're sinless by any means, but it does mean that you follow according to his word. And, and God's word says, if you sin, confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you, and repent, turn away from those sins, and commit to moving forward without sinning, right? That's the pattern of the Christian life. So if you're persevering in the faith, it doesn't mean that you're sinless, but when you sin, you repent, and as Pastor Tim talked last week, when persevering people suffer, they keep trusting God's sustaining power and comfort. 
They don't abandon God. They don't abandon striving for obedience simply because they're suffering. They persist in it. They keep trusting God's sovereign plan. But it's clear throughout the New Testament that only those who persevere in total devotion, trust, commitment to Jesus will be saved. Jesus said in Matthew 10, You'll be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm or perseveres to the end will be saved. In other words, you're going to face persecution. Uh, The Christian life is not easy, as we'll talk about in a minute. But if you persevere until the end, that's how you're confident that you'll be saved. Paul says the same thing effectively in Colossians chapter 1. He says, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now that's the salvation that we're looking for, right? That's the the future end time. I'm dead. Christ has returned. I'm standing before him. I'm without accusation. I'm totally innocent in his sight. That's the salvation we're looking for. But he continues, verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm and not moving from the hope held out in the gospel. So that's ultimately a glorious truth that you'll be saved. You'll stand before God blameless, but it's only true of you if you persevere until that day. So scripture is abundantly clear. Only those who persevere in active devotion to Christ will be saved. Now, some might think that, well, that probably isn't too difficult, right? I mean, Jesus said, if everybody's going to hate you, well, I don't know many people that hate me because I'm a Christian. Maybe some of you know some people like that. But we don't face intense persecution here in this country, so how difficult is it to persevere? Well, Hebrews teaches us that perseverance in the Christian life is actually treacherous. Look again at verse 12 and 13. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Verse 13, encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, we tend to ask the wrong questions when it comes to this idea of perseverance. The common question is, is it possible for me to lose my salvation? And again, the answer from Scripture is a resounding no. It is impossible for someone who has been once saved to lose their salvation. But maybe some of us are asking the wrong question. Maybe the question we need to ask is, is it possible for me to make a profession of faith without genuine faith being present, without being the real thing? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. Scripture, church history are full of examples of people who have once made a profession of faith, who have claimed the name of Christ, who have walked away from him at some point. It is not your profession of faith that saves, but only faith itself. And the only way to know that you have genuine faith is if you're persevering in devotion to Christ. Again, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Making a profession of faith is a fairly easy thing to do. I know people, I I grew up in the church, I know lots of people who prayed prayer after prayer after prayer, year after year after year growing up in children's ministry because they weren't really sure what was happening or maybe they didn't really have genuine faith or whatever the case may have been. But to 
to say those words is an easy thing. To persevere in doing the will of God, as Jesus says in Matthew 7, that is much more difficult. But that's what we're called to. So, if perseverance is so treacherous, what are our biggest threats? It's important that we know the dangers that we face. Well, one, like Pastor Tim talked about last week, is suffering. Okay? Suffering is a legitimate threat to our faith because often when people suffer, they begin to question the goodness of God. But the, the element highlighted in this passage today is sin. Sin is deceitful. It presents a false reality to us. It tells us that things are not really as they are. Right? It goes all the way back to the garden when Satan said, did God really say such and such? That's the temptation we face day by day. Sin tells us that life without God is actually going to make us happier. It tells us that striving for obedience and deeper devotion to him is just going to make life messier and more difficult. So why bother? That's what sin tells us. But the true reality is that sin has a deceitful, hardening effect on our hearts and ultimately leads to death. As James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So the question we need to ask ourselves today is, do you know the evil desires in your heart? Every one of us has them. None of us is exempt from evil desires that are deep-seated in our hearts. Is it pride? Maybe needing to maintain a certain reputation, a certain uh, standing in, among your peers, among your social club? Is it lust? Maybe you haven't uh, gotten control of that and, and thoughts are constantly taking you astray. Maybe indulging in pornography or an adulterous affair. Maybe it's laziness and sloth, certainly in the age of entertainment with Netflix and all the other amenities that modern life has to offer. Maybe we just don't have the willpower to do good works the way God calls us to. Or maybe it's some other thing like greed or complaining or envy or jealousy, some other thing that, that is an evil desire that's rooted in our hearts. Do we understand how dangerous it is to let those things fester? Right? The persevering in the Christian life means a constant rooting out of those things. It means once we get complacent, once we decide and say, you know what, I'm just not going to fight anymore, I'm not going to keep striving for obedience, that's the greatest danger of all because it has a hardening effect. It's a slow process and it's easily justified. A person starts out zealous for God. They surround themselves with Christians, they study the Bible frequently, they pray, they come to church, and they, they develop a hatred for sin. And that's well and good. And they, they do whatever they can. They confess their sins right away, they seek forgiveness, they seek repentance and reconciliation. But over time, as time goes on, you get a little more comfortable in the Christian life. Maybe you don't have that same zeal for God that you once did. And so you begin to be a more, little more complacent, right? Weekends away from the church, uh, mornings spent sleeping in rather than spending time in God's word. Uh, time in prayer just becomes not that important. And then sin begins to appeal to you. 
All of a sudden, it's not this thing that you hate anymore, but it's really not so bad. I mean, people sin, right? We all sin. What's the harm in it? Pretty soon, we begin to become distant from God, and we stop caring that He's there. We stop caring that He's uh, interested in what's going on in our lives, that He loves us, and that His salvation was designed to train us for, uh, uh, to renounce ungodliness and to pursue holiness. We begin to indulge sin, and sin begins to be a habit in our lives. And all of a sudden, we can't seem to find a way to stop it. It's just something we do. Then we become indifferent and apathetic towards God. We don't really care that God is interested in our lives. We don't really care that one day we're going to stand before him. Maybe because we've been blinded, because sin is deceitful, it blinds us to things. Or maybe our hearts have already begun the hardening process. We begin to love sin, and the thought of getting rid of sin, the thought of renouncing sin, becomes more intolerable than the thought of clinging to Christ. Then pretty soon we begin to hate God because we've entered this pattern where evil desire has taken root and it's been allowed to flourish and we haven't done anything about it and now we're just hardened. Hardening has had its full effect. Sin is deceitful. And part of our problem as Christians is we're not even aware that it's having this effect. We're not even aware of the ways that sin is taking root in our hearts and we just let it sit there. We don't do anything about it. Jeremiah says our hearts also are deceitful above all things. Who can understand them? The fact of the matter is this morning, you and I are more prone to sin than we could possibly imagine. You and I face the danger of renouncing our profession. Are we going to acknowledge it and be aware of it or are we going to suppress it and ignore it? So what are we to do about this? If perseverance is so difficult, so treacherous, what are we to do? Well, the writer of the Hebrews says, see to it that none of you turns away from the living God, that none of you is hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The third truth then we learn is that we, as Christians, are responsible to help one another persevere in the Christian life. We are responsible to one another. And notice verse 12, who the command is addressed to. It says, see to it, brothers and sisters. Now later in Hebrews, he's going to make a distinction between those in authority and those under authority. So sort of the pastors and deacons and, and the laity. He'll make that distinction later on. He doesn't make it here. Here he says, brothers and sisters, see to it that none of you has an unbelieving heart that turns away from God. It's all of us. As Christians, we are responsible for the spiritual well-being of other Christians. We can't be like Cain, who so arrogantly responded to God by saying, am I my brother's keeper? We don't get to make that excuse. If we profess the name of Christ in truth, in authenticity, then we know that we are responsible to help one another persevere. As Christians, we not only belong to God, we belong to one another in the church. So this brings us to our application, thinking about connecting, right? What does it mean to connect, whether it's south or with a group of Christian friends? When we think about connecting, do we understand that we have a responsibility to other Christians, 
to connect, to meaningfully engage with them, to cultivate relationships, to know what's going on in their lives, and to speak truth to them. Do we, ha- do we understand that that's our responsibility? God himself has given it to us. This isn't a matter for debate. This is a command in Scripture. And if you look back at verse 7, he says, As the Holy Spirit says, that's God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, saying, present tense, to us this morning, we have a responsibility to help one another. And the problem is, people like me, in my role overseeing small groups, is I tend to present connecting in terms of the benefits. And so, maybe an unintended consequence, maybe it's a blind spot in my own life, where we tend to present connecting with other Christians as sort of an optional, if it fits in your schedule, if the benefits really appeal to you kind of way. But Scripture doesn't present it that way. Scripture doesn't say, if, if really the benefits outweigh the costs to you, then make sure you build relationships with other Christians. It doesn't make that, that qualification. We make that qualification. We have a responsibility. So I want you to take your eyes off of me for a second and look at the people next to you in the pew. It's okay, you can turn your head side to side, right? Look front and back, okay? Every person you just laid your eyes on is facing spiritual danger day by day. Whether it's through suffering or through temptations to sin, Every person you just laid your eyes on is facing that same spiritual danger. Do we understand that we have a responsibility to one another? This isn't the movie theater. This isn't we enjoy the same show, we enjoy the same taste in music or or theology or whatever, and we're free to just go about our business. We have a responsibility because the dangers are very real. So there's two ways we can hear this command. He says, see to it that this doesn't happen. Now, we can hear it in a more casual tone, like when my wife tells me to see to it that you take out the recycling, and then I don't take out the recycling, and two days go by, the recycling is coming gone, it's still sitting on our counter. Or we can hear the grave tone that's really there, like someone's grabbed us by the lapels. See to it. This is a matter of life and death. See to it that none of you turns away from the living God. We need to stop thinking that our main goal in connecting with other Christians is to meet our own needs. Our main goal needs to be to obey the word of God and to do it lovingly in a way that glorifies him. Now, some people might say, well, to be this kind of involved in one another's lives, that's too messy. I don't want to pry into somebody else's personal business. I get that. That's a, that's a legitimate objection, that you don't want to pry into someone else's life. And some of you may have come from church traditions where uh, people are very legalistic and they try and catch one another in sin. They, they're constantly suspicious and trying to accuse one another. That's not good. And I'll, I'll acknowledge that and, and acknowledge that it's a legitimate objection. But if we stop doing everything the Bible commands us to do simply because someone somewhere at some time has abused it, then we might as well just pack up and go home, right? I certainly have no grounds to preach because people, Lord knows, people have abused preaching. We might as well stop doing the music because people have abused that as well. We might as well stop doing pretty much everything because sin distorts and twists everything. We're sinful people, 
right? Our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are deceitful. And so we've twisted all sorts of things. So just because we're commanded to be involved in one another's lives, to make sure that we're helping one another persevere in the faith, doesn't mean we have to be nosy, doesn't mean we have to be gossipy, doesn't mean we have to be prying into people's lives. There's a way to do that in a God-honoring way. So how do we do it in a God-honoring way? Well, we don't have to look too far for the application. It's right there in verse 13. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. This word encourage means to urge or plead with someone. Now, ironically, it's the same word that Pastor Tim focused on last week, uh, the idea of comfort. But this is where context really matters. So in the context of suffering, when you come alongside someone, the appropriate word to them is comfort, right? You don't want to be harsh with a person who's suffering. But to the person who's being tempted to sin, the person who's facing spiritual danger, you want to plead with that person because we don't know who the elect are. We don't know whose professions of faith are genuine and whose aren't. We're doing the best we can, but we want to encourage one another. We want to plead with them to remain faithful to their profession, to acknowledge areas of temptation in their lives and to renounce those things because sin has a terrible effect on us. Now, this is a messy business, but it's necessary. Note the, the context of the letter itself. Uh, as Tim read so well earlier in the passage, beginning in verse 7, the author quotes Psalm 95. So what is he doing there? Why is he quoting Psalm 95 in the context of Hebrews? Well, what he's doing is he's using the Bible in a way that's appropriate to the life circumstances of the people he's writing to. So the people he's writing to, most scholars agree, they're, they're tempted to convert back to Judaism because Christianity was being persecuted as a non-authorized sect and Judaism was an approved religion. So it was more advantageous to them to go back to Judaism. So that's their life circumstance. And in that context, the writer of the Hebrews says, hey, I know a passage that speaks directly to that, Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is a reflection to the Exodus when the people were wandering in the wilderness and they started to think that God had abandoned them. And so they said, you know what, Moses, we want nothing to do with you. God isn't among us. God hasn't been with us. You just let us out here to die. And he says, those people hardened their hearts. They were tempted to turn back. They were tempted to abandon God, to abandon their profession of faith. Don't be like them. So in order to do this well, in order to encourage one another well, we need to know two things. We need to know the scriptures very well. And I think most of us here are committed to that. But we also need to know people's life circumstances well. Is a marriage failing? Is someone tempted to, uh, to cheat on a business deal? Is someone tempted to indulge in entertainment to an unhealthy degree? Do we know what's going on in their life circumstances so that we can appropriate helpful words from God that we can plead with them from the scriptures to meet the needs of their life circumstances? Notice he even says, you know, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. Now, I used to, this was one of the memory verses, I think, growing up. I used to wonder why, as long as it's called today, every day is called today. Well, that's part of the point. But part of the point that he's making is today 
is from this passage. He's reminding them of a truth in Scripture that says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So to encourage them not to to fall into sin, he's reminding them of scriptural truth. And that's a practice that we certainly can be involved in as well. But it's difficult to do this. It's especially difficult given the size of our church, right? As you looked side to side a minute ago, you probably saw there's several hundred people in here and there's three services and, you know, there's a lot going on. So how can we know individuals' life circumstances? Well, we've tried as a church leadership to facilitate ways of getting to know individuals because we're limited, right? When, when it says this command, see to it that none of you falls away, He's not saying you need to make sure that all 13, 1,400 people here are not falling away. You have to operate within your limitations as a creature. And so we've tried to facilitate groups where you can actually get to know people, where you can ask questions in a helpful way to get to know them and what's going on in their lives. So there's four main ways that we've established to connect here at South. One is the adult Bible communities, which are going on this morning, uh, both right now and in the, the hour after this. Um, those are, are various age groups, and uh, they're, they're great ways to connect. Uh, men's Bible studies meet throughout the week in various places. Women's Bible studies, the same. And then growth groups are kind of a mixed co-ed uh, atmosphere where we usually meet in homes throughout the week where people can get to know one another as well. But these groups exist not just to have a board out and show the map of Lansing with all the different groups or to have a brochure, These groups exist for this purpose, so that people can live out what the Bible teaches. It says encourage one another. How do you do that? How do you know people to encourage them? Well, try and join one of these groups. Now, to be sure, you don't have to be a part of one of these groups to live faithfully in accordance with this command. There's lots of other groups out there, all sorts of things. But I would ask all of us, whether we're part of a group or not, to evaluate this in our minds. For whom am I responsible to help them persevere in the Christian life? Can I name people? Do I have a face in mind? This is someone that I pray for. This is someone that I'm concerned about. This is someone that I'm going to plead with from the scriptures to encourage them not to renounce their profession of faith. Do you have somebody in mind? Now, if you're part of one of these groups, hopefully someone from that group came to mind. But if not... Who's going to come to mind? Or are you just going to keep this command at arm's length? Or maybe you might say, well, I don't really have time to be a part of one of these groups. I've got a lot going on. I'm a busy person. Well, then we need to ask a different set of questions. Does God's word really shape your schedule? And if it doesn't, well, is your profession of faith really authentic? Again, being a Christian is not just about I prayed this prayer, I give money to the church, or I do these things. It's about a life that's shaped by the Word of God, which includes our schedules. So if we're saying I'm too busy to be a part of helping other Christians persevere in the Christian life, I need to start asking questions like what commands or what principles from God's Word are squeezing out that time that I would devote to that effort? What is it? Maybe we're the ones in danger of abandoning Christ. Now, again, there's a flip side to this. It's not just those who aren't part of groups that need to hear this. 
Those who are part of groups can still be a part of a group and not actually live this out. You can be connected at South and not actually being obedient to the Word of God. Some of us attend faithfully in these groups. We attend the group and we're at every meeting, but we never really get involved in anyone else's life. We never really pray for anyone else. We never really offer encouraging words to anyone else to help them persevere. And if that's true of us, then we need to repent of that today too. We can't be those people who just ease our conscience by saying, yes, I'm a part of such and such group when we're not really doing what those groups are meant, are meant for. Likewise, we can be one of those people that says we're a part of a certain group, but we don't actually attend that faithfully. Uh, sadly, today, most churches count regular attendance by those who are there 50% of the time, right? 50% of the time. I mean, I understand people have obligations and things that go on in life, and life is, is busy and complicated. But if you're only there 50% of the time, don't ask yourself, should I be there more? Ask yourself, who am I really helping persevere if I can't be there more than 50% of the time? Maybe my schedule needs to be adjusted to be there, or... Maybe I need to find a different group where I am present to help them persevere in the Christian life. So the encouragement today is we need to help one another persevere in the Christian life, whatever that looks like for you. Okay? I can't give you a specific, this is the thing that needs to happen, but this is what the text says. There are real spiritual dangers out there, and it's our responsibility to help one another persevere. I've been a Christian for something like 20 years now. I've been a part of a couple of different churches, been a part of youth groups and college ministry and various adult groups. Uh, I was part of a church in, in Bangladesh for a while. I've known a lot of people who have professed to be Christians who have abandoned the faith. I've known people who have sat in this room, in these pews, who have walked away from Christ. I've known people who have led Bible studies. One guy I even led a Bible study with who's abandoned his profession of faith. I've known people who seemed like they would never be the ones to turn away from the living God who have done just that. Let us not presume on our own works, on our own decisions, that we would not be among those people. Let's persevere. Let's understand that we're responsible to help one another we need to know the dangers that we face in our own soul, to be sure. But we need to know the dangers that our brothers and sisters are facing too. We need to care about it. We need to do something about it. And by God's grace, he'll lead us safely home. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that our powers to help one another persevere are limited and weak. And Father, we even acknowledge too that if someone abandons the faith that each person is responsible for their own faith, and so we're not on the hook for their guilt or innocence. But we are on the hook to be obedient to your word as Jesus is our king. So I pray, Lord, that this word, to be responsible, to help one another persevere in the, in the faith, that that would take root in our hearts, that our minds would keep coming back to that truth. Whenever we're tempted to distance ourselves from other Christians or be indifferent towards the needs of people around us, I pray that these are the truths that would come to mind. Help us in this endeavor by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.